Happy New Year, everybody. Would you pray with me before we begin? Uh, Father God, we invite you into this space, uh, into this time as we open uh, the scriptures and seek wisdom for the year ahead. I pray, uh, God, that you would speak clearly and that each of us uh, would be able to hear your voice, that we would be able to set aside the distractions, to set aside the, the worries, the things that might be clouding our minds, and that we would just hear your voice clearly, both individually and as a community, as the church. Um, so Father, would you speak? Uh, I pray, as, as I often or always do, that I would simply disappear in this time and that your Holy Spirit would remain. Uh, we are listening, Father. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, it is a, a new year, this is a new series, and I want to start by asking you guys a, just to think uh, about this question. Who in your life would you say is probably the most selfless person that you know? Okay, don't, just, just think about that for a second. Who is the most selfless person that you know? And I, I can say, probably without a doubt, my maternal grandfather, granddaddy's from the South, I call him granddaddy, uh, is probably the most selfless person I know. And I know you're watching, granddaddy, and I know you want me to call you granddad, but I call you granddaddy because I have since I was a child, so sorry. So granddaddy is, uh, he's one of those guys that is like ridiculously selfless, okay? He was a missionary like his whole life. He went and lived in South America his whole life. And then after he got a little too old to be on the mission field, he moved to somewhere in Florida where the missions agency was. And he spent all of his time like going back and forth with the, the consulate of Bolivia to get visas for other missionaries. And he would like mow the grounds of the, like he was constantly doing that kind of thing. He also, with a missionary's salary, would basically single-handedly fund every short-term trip my sister and I ever wanted to go on. We had a running joke that maybe he was actually like a, like a drug dealer down in Florida or something, because <laughs> where did he get this money that he was able to send us? But it was because he lived so frugally so that he could give. I actually, he's one of the only people I've ever heard, this is his reason. He gave up meat, eating meat for a while, not because of philosophy, not because of animal welfare, nothing. He gave it up so he could give more money away because it was cheaper to be a vegetarian. That's the kind of man that he is. Now, granddaddy, I know this is probably a little, I'm, hopefully I'm not embarrassing you, but he's also so selfless that, that he takes it sometimes to a bit of an extreme. Uh, there was a time when he had a heart attack he drove himself to the hospital because he didn't want to bother anybody, okay? So it can go a little bit extreme, but, but you get the picture. My grandfather is a selfless, selfless guy. Now, I'm sure you're probably thinking of somebody in your life that you would also say, yeah, they're really, really selfless. They're always thinking about others. They're not thinking about themselves. And what I wonder is, why is that so remarkable, like in this time, in this place, why is it so rare to find somebody like granddaddy who, who seems to be so others focused? Why is it such a, a, a notable thing for someone to be selfless? Well, I've thought about this a lot, and especially as I've traveled the world and, and seen different cultures and seen the way that different values that different cultures have, one of the things I've really come to understand is that we, in this sort of suburban Midwest American culture, we're a little selfish, okay? And I mean, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I think we'd all agree. As a culture, we're kind of focused on me, right? It's about me. It's about my desires. It's about what's good for me. It's about my rights. It's about my whatever. We are always focused on me. And so when someone comes along who is truly selfless, 
it's actually pretty astounding to us because everything in our culture, our upbringing, our media, everything is telling us that it's about you. You should get what you want. You should live the way you live. Do you. You do you, right? This is our whole cultural paradigm. Well, as I've been growing in my faith, as I've been reading scripture, something over these last several years especially has become really uh, convicting to me as I've thought about what, uh, what God calls his followers to become, what, what the early church was like, what Jesus was like and wants his, wants his followers to look like. The thing that I keep seeing over and over again, and you've probably heard it in my messages because it comes up a lot, is that we are called as followers of Christ to be selfless. Like, not just as an option, not just as something that's like nice to do when you, when you, you know, you got your sin stuff figured out. It seems to me to be rather core to the entire experience of following Jesus. So, so stick with me here, because look at this. We've got a culture that's based on self, and we've got a, a, a faith that's apparently based on selflessness. How do we reconcile those two things? And that's what I want us to talk about this month. We're starting a new year, 2022, which, by the way, doesn't it kind of sound like a sequel, like 2022, The Reckoning? Like, I hope not. I hope not that it's not another redo of 2020. Let's hope that's not, maybe it's 2022, The Redemption. That's, that's probably it. Um, but it's a new year, and I want us to think about this concept of, of biblical selflessness, not just because I think it's important, but because I think it actually may be the key to closing the credibility gap. We talk about the credibility gap a lot, right? There's, there's uh, the gap that people have to jump if they want to follow Jesus. That's a big gap. You've got to take the faith gap, the big leap into the unknown. But there's an entirely other gap, the credibility gap, that frankly exists in part because of Christ followers who don't represent the message of Jesus particularly well. That gap means people aren't even going to ask the questions about faith or Jesus if they don't even want to be a part of the church at all. And so I think there's an opportunity here for us in a self-focused time to begin learning how to be selfless in a way that actually changes that credibility gap and actually opens people's minds to the possibility that we actually have something worth listening to, worth thinking about, worth giving our lives to. Selflessness. So I want this to be the year of selflessness at Grace. That's going to be a theme that, that I would like us to come back to and to think about for this year. And, and not just as a church, but perhaps you individually as well. I'd like to invite you to consider that. Um, there's a YouTube video guy, YouTuber that I watch. His name's CCP Gray. Anybody watch him? Anybody at all? No? Okay, that's fine. He's great. Check him out. He makes these like animated little explainer videos and essays. I don't know. He's good stuff. He's got this thing, which I think is brilliant, when you're coming to a new year. A lot of people talk about resolutions in a new year, like, I'm going to read 30 books this year or something like that. And by their very nature, resolutions are almost guaranteed to be broken, right? Because how are you going to read 30 books? You're going to get halfway through the year and realize, oh, I haven't even read one yet. Like, you're going to get exhausted and not be able to do it. He suggests the, a better way to approach goals like that is to talk about it in themes, like saying, this is going to be the, the winter of reading. And so you're just, this is the winter of reading. You're just trying to read a bit more instead of saying, I'm going to read this many books. And suddenly that's totally doable. It's all, you're, you're totally accomplishing it just by reading any more than you, than you normally would, right? 
I think the same thing can be true for selflessness. I'm not trying to say that every one of us needs to go out and be granddaddy, right, this year from zero to 100, but I wonder if this could be the year, a theme of selflessness, where each one of us is beginning to grow ever so slightly to look a little bit more like Jesus and the selflessness that he showed us. Okay, so to set up this whole series, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that I quote all the time, but it's been a while since I've given an entire sermon on it, and so I'd like to look at this together. Now, you notice I'm not doing this with notes today, probably because this is by, by far my all-time favorite passage of scripture, um, but also... Unfortunately, without notes, I don't have like slides for you. So if you want to follow along, please grab a Bible uh, in the house Bibles. We're going to turn to Philippians chapter 2, or you can use a Bible on your phone. Uh, It'd be great if you could see it in front of you because we're going to kind of start and stop as we go through this passage together. So, all right, this is the, to me, this is like the ultimate passage about selflessness in scripture. And uh, this is something that Paul is writing to this church in the city of Philippi. Now, before we read it, let me give you just a little context. Uh, Philippi was a, a, a Roman colony, but it was in Greece. Now, Roman colonies, they were all over the world, but Philippi had a unique uh, sort of special status. It was called Ius Italicum, uh, Italian law is, a, is, a, is how you translate that in English. And what that meant was that if you were in, in Philippi or if you were born a Philippian citizen, then you automatically were considered a citizen of Rome. Like hundreds of miles away, you were instantly a citizen of Rome. You know, it's kind of like if you're, what, if you're born, how does it work at an embassy or something like that? You're, you're considered an American citizen. I don't actually know how that works, but it's the idea, like, you, even though you maybe have never even been to Rome, if you are, are on Philippian soil, then you are a Roman citizen. So Roman citizenship was a really big deal, and everybody in Philippi, they wanted to act and look like Romans. They wanted to have Roman culture and Roman values and all of it, and so uh, Paul is speaking to people who value their citizenship in, with Rome really highly, and he uses a metaphor, not in this passage, but throughout the rest of the book. He says that you are citizens of heaven, And this isn't just a a random quotation. He's basically saying the same way that you are citizens of Rome, you are citizens of heaven. You don't belong here. Your citizenship is in heaven. And as a result, you should have the same values as heaven. You should have the same uh, ideals as heaven. You should live as a citizen of heaven. And so here is a little bit of what he means by that. If you were uh, to teach a Roman audience or maybe some... some, uh, teacher in in Philippi might say to their Roman children, all right, children, you've got to be, if you're a Roman, you've got to have honor, you've got to have strength, you've got to have self-discipline, right? These are the kinds of things you might say. If you're a Roman citizen, this is what it looks like. Well, this to Paul is what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Philippians 2. He says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Well, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with one, with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. 
So this is, to Paul, this right here is what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. These are the things. And, and in fact, everything he says there is really just one word. He's like, any encouragement, any love, any, uh, he uses that word splachnon that I talk about all the time, that gut level compassion, it, it's there again. It, is there any of that? Because if there is, that's what you're supposed to be as a citizen of heaven. He says all this, and then he says that you should be working together, and I love this, with one mind and purpose, one mind. Now, in, in the Greek, the way that he describes this is actually thinking together, thinking as one, which is so interesting to me. If you're going to be a community that looks like heaven, then you need to think the exact same way. Now, file that away, because we're going to come back to that in a moment. Think as one. Have the same mind as one another. Okay, so this is what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven. These are the values, this, this love, this compassion, this, this thinking together. But how do you do that? What is that, like, practically speaking, how do you live that out, Paul? Well, he goes on. He says, this is what it looks like to think as one mind, with one mind. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. So there it is. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Now, this next passage is interesting because he says, thinking of others as better than yourselves. And uh, first of all, in Greek, if you're curious, what he's literally saying is, is to hold above, to, to hold others above yourself. It's like to elevate someone else. Consider them better than yourselves. Now, of all the things that I've preached about, this concept has gotten the most pushback. For, for me. Seriously, I've had conversations with people and they're like, okay, I know we're supposed to like think, like love our neighbors as ourselves, but we're not supposed to love, think of people as better than ourselves. That can't be right, right? And I'm like, I don't, it just says it right there. I don't know. Think of others as better than yourselves. It's kind of countercultural. One thing that I've heard people have said, and I actually had a conversation with a guy who was like, look, I'm all about, you know, everything being equal. I'm all about, you know, not having divisions between people, but I'm not supposed to be just a doormat, right? I'm not supposed to just be walked all over and roll, rolled all over by other people, right? And I'm like, well, it says consider others as better than yourself. It says hold up others above yourself. So how do we reconcile? Are, are we supposed to be doormats? Is that what it means to be a citizen of heaven? Like, like if we're supposed to be uh, representing the values of our kingdom of God, are we supposed to be doormats? Is that what it means to, to, to have self-giving love? Honestly, when we talk about our values and we talk about it's not about me, is that what we mean? It's not about me, so just I'm just going to lay over and just be a doormat and y'all can do whatever you want. Is that what it means when we say that it's not about me? Well, let's try to answer that question by continuing to read this passage because at this point, at this point, Paul says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus has and, and he goes on to describe that with this beautiful poem. But I don't want you to miss this. In verse 5, he says all of this is possible if you have the same attitude that Christ Jesus has, but literally that word attitude, it's the same word from before about having one mind. It's to think the same way, to think as one with Christ. Now, I want you to, to notice that because if the key for us to, to be citizens of heaven is to think together, to think as one mind, 
And the way that that mind is supposed to look is to have the mind of Christ, then that means that we've got our work cut out for us because not only do we have to think together, but we have to think the same way as our Savior. And how did he think? Well, let's keep reading. Though he was God, Christ did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and he was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and he gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so that's a lot to take in right there. This is the attitude that we are supposed to have. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Now let me just show you a couple uh, details in there that I think are important. Uh, Verse 7 says that he gave up his divine privileges. That's how the New Living Translation likes to put it. But, but what, what it's really saying there is that he emptied himself. He emptied himself. And this word in Greek, kenosis or, or kenao, is actually something that's become, uh, it, it's become part of the theology for some of how could Jesus be both God and human. It was this idea of, it's called kenotic theology, this idea that, that as God, he emptied himself of his divine privileges to become a human. It's, it's, it's kind of fundamental to who he is. He emptied himself. Uh, but he also, he didn't just empty himself. Verse 8 says he humbled himself. Now, I've mentioned this before, but humility in the ancient world was not actually the virtue that it is today. We would all say it's great to be humble. Uh, you know, oh, what a, what a humble person. That's such a good thing. In the ancient world, we live in a, in a this is not an honor-shame-based society, but in an ancient context, it was. Honor and shame were the, the, the key indicators of your status in the world, and, and you wanted everything you, you, every conversation you had, every person you interacted with, there was an honor-shame dynamic that, that determined whether or not you were moving up or moving down the ladder. And let me tell you, you don't want to go down the ladder in an honor-based culture. You don't want to do that. And so when, when it says that he humbled himself in obedience to death, I mean, this is, this is Christ willingly choosing to go down the ladder. Frankly, I think a better word in my understanding of this would be that he humiliated himself. That kind of, that, that maybe speaks to us a bit better in our, in our modern parlance, right? He humiliated himself. He became a slave to us. All of a sudden, it, this, this puts this uh, emptying himself of Jesus into a whole new context because he's God. He's the creator of everything, right? And yet he is emptying himself. He is humiliating himself and he's becoming a slave and dying for humans that he created. This is an extreme level of self-denial. This is self-giving love in its most extreme form, isn't it? The idea that God himself would empty himself, that Christ would, would set aside his own divinity for our sake, but not just to become equal with us, but to die for us as a criminal. He became obedient. He, he, he was humiliated for us. He lowered himself 
for us to be elevated. So you might say that and say, well, I guess he was a doormat, right? Jesus himself went to the cross. He was a doormat. But, but I don't think that fully captures it. This wasn't just Jesus uh, uh, descending. Something else was going on here that is really important for us to pay attention to. And it's in the second half of this little psalm, starting in verse 9. He did all of this. He humiliated himself. And then it says, therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor. He, and he goes on, every knee is going to bow in heaven and on earth. Every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, this, this depiction here of him being elevated, of every knee bowing, this is actually a, a reference to something that would have been very familiar to people in Paul's day, and that's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 is this very interesting prophecy, uh, very, very apocalyptic prophecy uh, of these, these giant beasts roaming the earth, and, and they represent these corrupt human kingdoms, and they've got dominion and power over everything. But then something happens where, where all of a sudden uh, the heavens are opened up. God himself is there, and you see this, this figure, one who is a, a human, one like a son of man who is elevated. Here's what it says in Daniel 7, verse 13. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man, someone like a human, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed." So you see throughout the Old Testament and even in, in Jesus' day and Paul's day, this, this dream of one day this human being who is in some way both human and divine would be able to ascend into the presence of God and rule the world forever. And all these beasts, all these corrupt nations and systems of injustice, and all they're all gone because this, this one like a son of man is going to rule forever. This is the vision of the Messiah. This is the vision of what's coming. And Jesus, and then Paul, they're basically saying that Jesus is that son of man. This was, by the way, this is the, the, the term that Jesus used to describe himself more than any other term, the son of man. He saw himself as this divine human being elevated. But according to Paul, that elevation happens through the sacrifice of Jesus. The elevation happens by him descending in obedience and humiliation to death. Think about that for a second. That goes so contrary to any of our, our ways of thinking about the world. That's not how we think about leadership. That's not how we think about rulers. He says, it, Paul says uh, that everyone will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's making a very, very, uh, very controversial statement by saying that. Because everybody in the Roman world, everybody especially who wanted to be a good Roman citizen, they all knew Caesar is Lord. That's what you say, Caesar is Lord, and he's saying, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. And again, we think of Jesus Christ as like Jesus and his last name, Christ, but Christ means Messiah. He's saying Jesus, the Messiah, the one who is promised to come and be elevated to the presence of God who died at the hands of Rome. He is the actual Lord of the world. So what's going on here? How is it possible that Jesus could be this king, this ruler, this, this, this Messiah, 
if he's gonna be so humiliated on the cross? Well, look at what Jesus himself says in Mark 10. In Mark 10, uh, there was this, this, I don't know, hubbub among his followers about who was gonna be the greatest in this new kingdom of heaven, who was gonna be sitting at his right hand and left hand, and they all wanted to be those guys. And Jesus says this. He says, you know, you know, my followers, that the rulers in this world, they lord it over their people. Officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man, there it is, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Jesus is doing and what Paul's picking up on in Philippians is he is connecting the dots here and saying, yes, yes, he is the son of man. Yes, he is the one ascending to the heavens, but that ascension happens by descending. You descend to ascend in the kingdom of God. That elevation, that glory that's his, it comes because of his humiliation. It comes because he set himself aside. That is how it works in the kingdom of God. You descend to ascend. And that is the way that we are supposed to be thinking together, individually. That is the mind that we are supposed to share with Jesus and with one another, a mind that sees descending and self-giving as the path to leadership and influence. So here's my response to the question, are we supposed to be a doormat? Are we supposed to just get walked all over? I don't even think that's the right question because that implies that there's a passivity to it, right? That being selfless means just kind of throwing up your hands and saying, ah, whatever happens, happens. There is nothing passive about what Jesus did. It's active. He set himself aside. He emptied himself. He humiliated himself. And we can do the same thing. We can lower ourselves. We can consider others as better than ourselves. We can live in such a way that we are constantly in a race to the bottom, a race to the bottom, trying to outdo one another in selflessness and love. This isn't being doormats. This is having the humility of our Savior. That's what it looks like. And so, I don't know, guys. This is hard. This is hard for us in a selfish time because I don't want to be selfless. It could be painful. There are times when I might feel like a doormat. But if this is the, the, the mentality that I have towards my world, I do know one thing for sure. If I approach my world with humility and with selflessness, I will be approaching it in the same way as Christ. And so I want us to spend the year thinking about that. I want us to think about what it would look like if each one of us began to think the same way as him, if we looked for ways to lower ourselves, if our default settings got changed to be self-giving. Can you imagine what would happen in our world, what would happen in our community, in our families, in our, our own personal lives if we reoriented our perspective and began to see the world like him? That's what Paul calls us to. In Grace Church, that's what I'm calling us to. The year of selflessness. Can we make 2022 a year where we look like Jesus? How amazing would that be? Now, 
I wanna give you some practical hooks to think about this with because I, I know that it's like, again, it's like a resolution saying, I'm gonna, this year is gonna be, I'm gonna be selfless. There you go. How do you measure that, right? You can't. Again, I'm gonna look at it as a theme, the theme of selflessness. So how do we begin to move a little bit more towards that self-giving love of Jesus in our own lives? Well, I believe the key is, is actually back in verse six. It says, though he was God, Jesus did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. And I want to just cling to this word for a second. Sorry, that was stupid. Uh, whatever. I want to stick on this word for a second, cling to, because it's actually, uh, it, it's really important. This, this uh, word in Greek, it's uh, grasp. To, to grasp with eagerness is literally what it means. And, and so it, it, you can imagine if, you're, if you've got something that's really important to you, you cling to it, you hold on to it, you grasp it. And according to Paul here, Christ, as he was emptying himself, he did not think of his own divinity as something to cling to, as something to grasp. So I would like to ask us all, right, right now, this week, this month, to ask ourselves, what is it that each one of us are, what are we clinging to? What are we grasping? And what might it look like to let those things go? I'll give you a few ideas. Maybe, maybe we're clinging to our reputation, Maybe we don't want to be seen in, in a negative light. We don't want to be, uh, we don't want people to think negatively of us. We don't, you know, that's why we are curating our Facebook and Instagram posts to make our lives look perfect because we don't want anyone to think less of us. We're clinging to our reputation. And I, I said this, <laughs> I, a few months ago I said this, I'm going to say it again. Those Gen Zers in our midst who think that you're supposed to do that perfectly curated, imperfect vision of yourself online, it's just the same thing. You're still clinging to your reputation. You want everyone to think, oh, look how humble and, and, and you know, interesting they are. It's still clinging to reputation. What would it look like for us to set our reputation aside? To actually think about what other people, to, to think less about what other people think about us and start considering their needs and not just our own. Could we stop clinging to our reputation a bit more this year? Maybe it's uh, clinging to your resources, your, your wealth, your, uh, your money, your time, your, your talents. I mean, I get it. Right? This is an economically stressful time. This is a, a time of, of uh, anxiety and, and angst, and our, our, our default impulse when that happens is to hold things tightly, to keep things with a closed fist, and not to be generous, not to spread our, our wealth or our time or our energy around. What if we were to release that death hold? on our time, on our resources? What if we were to begin looking for ways to use what God has blessed us with to bless others? Looking out for the interests of others and not just for our own. Having that gut level compassion where we see the needs of others and we are ready to respond. Not just with money, guys, but with our time, with our energy, with our skills. Can we release our grip and stop clinging to the things that are ours? Because if we do and we start practicing self-giving love, our friends, our neighbors, those who are on the receiving end of that love, they may very well start to feel it and start to wonder, what's different about this person? Can we give up our time? Can we give up our resources for the sake of others? Here's one that, that maybe is a little bit weird, but I thought about this. Can we give up clinging to our pride? When I say that, what I'm thinking of specifically 
are, are those of us who are in a time of need or, or a time of, of pain or a, a time of going through difficult, uh, a difficult season. Now, I know that when we say it's not about me, it, it may be tempting. If you're someone who's struggling or suffering right now, it may be tempting, like granddaddy, to, to drive yourself to the hospital, right? That may be, well, it's not about me, so I'm gonna do that. I wanna tell you, if you do that, it's possible. Not granddaddy, you're, you're not this isn't you. But it's possible that by looking out only for, or by not allowing other people to care for you, you are actually clinging to a level of pride. You're, you don't want other people to, to see you as, as needy or a victim or whatever. I bet there are people at Grace Church who are so desperately in need of our care center services right now, but you don't want to darken the door because you don't want people to what? Think less of you. Right? I'm asking you, perhaps, Perhaps the most selfless thing you can do right now, this year, this month, is to allow others to care for you. I know that's a bit of a, of a roundabout uh, way to look at it, but I'm telling you, if, if we are called to have the same mind, to work together with one spirit and one heart, we can't do that if you are in desperate need and nobody knows. We are called to love and elevate one another. So will you let us elevate you for a second I know that you're humble. I know that you've got a, uh, you, you don't want people to think less of you. We don't. We don't think less of you. We love you exactly the way you are. Would you let us care for you? And maybe it's not economic. Maybe it's spiritual. Maybe you need to talk to somebody about that deep, dark thing that you haven't told anyone else. Maybe you need to, to open up your heart to someone else. Maybe that is what it looks like to set yourself aside. Could you consider releasing that, that grip on your pride. I think I covered them all. I think that's it. There we go. I, I, I had a list of four, but I think I covered all of them in three. So, amazing. This is really tough, preaching without notes, I'll tell you. So friends, here's what I want us to do for this next uh, week especially. As we begin this series, we're going we're gonna to look at uh, different aspects of, of self-giving love. This is more just a setup. This is, I just want us to be thinking about being citizens of heaven, right? Jesus Christ is Lord, not, not Caesar is Lord. I want us to think about that. Um, but, but starting next week, we're going to begin looking at different aspects of it. What does it look like to, to set ourselves aside and, uh, and trust in God's plan? What does it look like to set ourselves aside and to love our enemies? Lots of things like that, right? It's going to be really, really interesting. We're even going to look at what is it like to set ourselves aside and start listening to and respecting people from different generations than us. It's going to be interesting. I'm sure it'll be, inter- it'll be, it'll be lots of fun as we talk about selflessness and poke ourselves in the eye for how selfish we often are. It's going to be interesting. But I'm really telling you guys, I believe at, at my core that this is what we in our time, in our culture, need to learn selflessness. Because if we do, not only will this church begin to look a bit more like Christ, which is a great thing, but we can begin to help that gospel, the good news of Jesus, take root in our community by addressing the credibility gap. People don't think very highly of Christians right now, many of them in our community. We can change that by living like Christ. His love is irresistible, but it has to be on display. We are the light of the world, and this is a part of what it looks like for us to shine. So let's make this the year of self-giving love, the year of selflessness. That's our theme, and I think it's going to really change us in a good way. 
Would you pray with me? Father God, what a privilege it is to be a part of this community that follows you, to be a part of, of, of your body. As always, I, I'm, I'm baffled that you would lower yourself, that you would send your only son to become one of us, to die for us, to, to, uh, to rise again, to defeat death, and invite us to start living as him, with him, in him. It's, it's wild, Father. And so I pray, God, as we enter into another year, which could be great or could be really, really challenging, as we enter into this year, Father, would we keep our eyes focused on you and would we look for ways that we can, in big ways and small, represent the self-giving love of our Savior who emptied himself, who humiliated himself for us? Can we begin to show that love to one another, to our community, to our world? Because, Father, we want your light to shine. We pray all these things in the name of our Savior, in the name of the one who set himself aside for us, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us/hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.